good to be back with everybody tonight. If you were with us last week, we were not here. If you showed up, don't tell me. Uh, I put a sign up, and you're like, hey, where is everyone? We were at the one church gathering, the second one we've ever done. It was at Miami Springs, Crossbridge, Miami Springs. And, and if you're unfamiliar with this, a few times a year, we're going to gather together with the other Crossbridge churches and worship together as, as one large church. And uh, it was awesome if you went to Miami Springs. I had never been to Miami Springs before in my life, so I'm going over this bridge, and I was like, where are we going? Is this Miami? And it's like this old, it's a really cool area. The, the, the church is beautiful. And we were together with Crossbridge Pinecrest, Miami Springs, and us, uh, worshiping together, eating together, laughing together. It really was an awesome, awesome Sunday. And if you missed it, it it's okay, because we have another one coming up July 31st. It's going to be the last Sunday in July, and this time it'll be at Crossbridge Pinecrest, and I'm just going to say this now, we're hosting in October, I don't know how, um, so we're going to have to figure that out, because we definitely cannot fit everybody in here, so if you have any ideas, feel free to come talk with me. But we're going to um, be transitioning into a new series now, and uh, we, we've been going through the last few months this series on the vision and values of Crossbridge. What, who are we? What are the things that we say are the values that we want to live out as a church, as a body? And it's really been providential, I think, for Jessica and I, because we are new here. Uh, we've been here almost, I think, a little over four months now. And so when we arrive, the series that we start, that I'm able to kind of be in it with you guys, preaching and working through it, is a series on the values of the church. And so it's been really good for us. And I think it's, we felt like we have kind of connected and bonded with you all by going through that journey together. And it's been good for me personally, because I've been asking myself the question, Am I constantly cross-focused, community-driven, city-positive, and seeking to see the gospel move in the city? And uh, it's been a challenging thing to work through and to wrestle through. So we're looking at the, the church corporate in this last series, and we're going to kind of dive in a little bit more narrow in this series. We're looking at the book of 1 Peter, and it's going to be focused more on you and really us here. So the series is called Who You Are, and it's really a focus on identity. Who are we? And that's the question, like, that's the question that we all ask in life, right? It's one of the most important questions in life. We all ask it. Every single human being does. It's so much of our life is dedicated to trying to figure out, who am I? What is my identity? There's a song that came out a little bit ago. I think it's so popular. It's by Mike Posner. It's called, I Took a Pill in Ibiza. I don't know if you've heard it. But the song, it's a very catchy song. The song is... Uh, the song's about sadness, really. It's about the sadness of his life and how he has everything that other people want. He has fame, he has fortune, he has opportunities to travel, he has all these different things. But he compares in the song his life to a sad song. And there's a, there's a lyric in here I want to read to you. He says this, they said to us, how to, they, they said, tell us how to make it because we're, get, we're getting real impatient. So I looked him in the eye and said, you don't want to be high like me, never really knowing why like me. You don't ever want to step off that roller coaster and be alone. See, the song is about identity. It's about his struggle with identity. Who am I and what is life about and why does my life seem so incomplete and empty despite the fact that I have all of these things? And people are looking at me and saying, hey, how do I get what you have? And he's like, listen, you don't want what I have. And that's the question of identity, right? This is a question that we ask ourselves, and probably many of us, if not most of us in this room, are working that through. Who am I? 
And that's what we're going to be diving into tonight in, in 1 Peter 1, 1 through 5. It's how Peter starts his letter. But before we jump there, I think it's really important that we ask maybe the, the most important question in this series to start. And that's, who is Peter? <laughs> he's the author of this book, if you didn't catch that, 1 Peter. He's the guy that wrote it. And I think it's really important that we know who he is because it helps kind of shape and color everything that he's going to say. Peter, if you're familiar, was one of the 12 disciples. Before that, though, he was a fisherman. He was in Sea of Galilee. And Jesus comes to him. It's this famous moment where he comes to Peter, and he asks Peter to leave everything, to follow him. And Peter does. He leaves everything. He leaves his job. He leaves his family. He leaves comfort. He leaves his friends. And he goes and follows this man around for three years. And he's pretty much homeless in that time because they keep moving. And he's following a man also that's very largely hated. This is who Peter is. He also um, is regarded as maybe the chief or the leader of the original 12 disciples. He had some very unique opportunities. He was the man that got the opportunity to walk on water. He was given, he and John were both given this opportunity to prepare the Passover meal for the last supper before Jesus was betrayed and before he was killed. When in the gospel of Mark, when the angel looks at the women at the tomb, the empty tomb, she, she, the angel says to the women, go and tell the disciples and Peter, singles them out because of how important he is. He was also, um, he's the man that if you read throughout all the gospels, he consistently and continually is asking Jesus to explain things. He's asking Jesus, can you explain that parable? Can you explain that teaching? And oftentimes he says what everybody else is thinking. He is a really, really important figure in the New Testament, in the life of the church. He's one of the central figures of the birth of Christianity. And his name was not always Peter. His name originally was Simon. Jesus changed his name to Peter, which means the rock. And because he said, Peter, you are the rock on which I'm going to build my church. So he gives him this authority as I'm going to use you, Peter, to, to promote and to advance the gospel through the church. And so we look at Peter like, man, this guy is unbelievable. But as outstanding as he is, and all the success and all the great opportunities that he has, he is also great at failing. He is very, very broken. If you notice, when you read, he has what I like to call a foot and mouth disease. He says things, and you're like, oh, man, you should not have said that, Pete. That's what his friends call him, Pete. But he, he also is, he, he comes across as rash and abrasive. He's kind of this figure, it's kind of like... He, He's always going to talk. He's a kind of a little bit aggressive. And maybe most famously, he looks at Jesus in the face and he says, I will never deny you. I will die for you. I'll never deny you. And then immediately after, he denies Jesus three times in his most important hour of his life. When he's being tried and convicted of crimes he did not commit. He denies him to save his own skin. But not only that, it's not the only moment. Then when Jesus, and the, uh, Peter in the first century, and, uh, as he's advancing the church, he's all, it also becomes very clear that Peter is borderline racist. He has a really hard time accepting the fact that Gentiles, non-Jews, are allowed and called and accepted to be people of God. He, see, he, he, he's Jewish, so he understands and he views non-Jews as unclean. And so he has a really hard time with this. Actually, he and Paul have a battle over this whole issue. God has to give Peter a vision so he can finally understand a little bit of like, okay, no, the gospel is for everyone. So this is who Peter is. 
he's, he's an incredible man, but he's also a man that is a failure and has made massive mistakes. Think about the transition that this man's gone through. He's a fisherman with a humble but stable job to becoming a man that's going to follow around Jesus for three years. He's also a man who is the chief example. He is the leader, but he's also the example of how to fail massively. And he is this growing, broken, confused, he feels inadequate, and yet God has called him to be the rock on which the church would be advanced and grown. Imagine that. Imagine who he is and what he's feeling. See, you may be asking, why does this matter for the book? Well, it matters because what Peter is going to be preaching and teaching through this letter, he's gone through. He understands what it's like to be tempted by the comforts of the world. He understands what it's like to be tempted to save your own skin because that's what he did. (laughs) He made that mistake. He understands what it's like to seek to find your identity in this life. He understands what it's like to to have this battle with God over things that you think are really important to you, but God sees it a little bit different. All these things he's going to deal with and talk about, he's gone through, he's wrestling through, he's struggling with. He's preaching to himself as much as he's preaching to us because he's broken, he's flawed, he's not perfect. And I think it's important that we take that in because so oftentimes when we read the Bible and we read uh, stories or we read letters like this and we look at Peter and we're like, man, Peter is... Wow, he's amazing. And he is. He's faithful and obedient to the point to where when he was killed, eventually he was martyred by Nero. He says, I'm not worthy of being killed the same way as my Savior, so crucify me upside down. Faithful, obedient, but he's broken. He is messy. He is not perfectly put together. And sometimes we take the humanity out of the authors, right? As if Peter is somehow like another level of human that none of us will ever reach. He's not. He's like us. And, and what Peter shows us, and, and we talk about this a lot, and we're, gonna, we're not going to stop overstating it because it's so important. God does not use perfect, put-together people because none of, no people like that exist, right? He uses messy and willing people. And that's Peter. Peter is messy. He's, will, he's, he's willing, but he's messy and broken and failed in so many different ways, and yet God uses him to launch the church. I thought about this. If you had a church consultant, and they said, listen, we're, we're going we're gonna to launch the church. Any startup, in the very beginning, it's really important how you start, right? you got to start well. Hey, i got a great idea. We're going to launch the church, and we're going to have this movement of Christianity. We want it to spread all over the world and all these different things. We're going to get a guy who's rash and abrasive, borderline racist, and he's denied the central figure of this movement. Sounds like a great candidate, right? Think about it. That's who Jesus chose to be the face, the founder, the guy that was going to really help launch the movement, Peter. And you see Peter's faithfulness. You see his obedience, but he's just like us. And so that's the beauty of God's word, right? God's word comes to all of us, and it has power. It has beauty to transform who we are through the gospel. God's grace is big enough for all of our brokenness, all of our weakness, all of our inadequacy, to transform us, and God uses broken, messy people for great things. He did it with Peter, and he can do it in all of our lives through his grace. So here's how he starts the book. Here's what God wants to say through Peter about identity. Peter, he says, an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's so important. He says, Peter is how he introduces himself. He doesn't say, Peter, a Jew. That's who I am. He doesn't say, Peter, the chief leader of the disciples. He doesn't say that. He doesn't worry about status. 
He doesn't say Peter, a fisherman, you know, the, the job that he had had for so many years. He says Peter, an apostle, which means sent one. So he's essentially saying, in the very beginning, here's my identity. Here's how I want you to know me. I am sent by God. I'm, I'm a follower of God. I'm a believer. This is who I am. I am sent by God. It says a lot about what he's holding on to, right? And here's what he says, verses 1 and 2. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for the obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So he's writing to people in Asia Minor, and he says that he's writing to those who are elect. Now, we're not going to talk about this because we'll be here all night uh, if we're going to deal with what you know, free will and, and, and choice or election and predestination, uh, these theological discussions. But I do want to preface and say, I think it's really important to work that through. What does it mean? How does this work in terms of who God is in regards to our salvation? We'll be here all night if we talk about it now, so we're not. But if you're interested, if you're working that through, if you're processing that, I really want to encourage you to come talk with me. I'd love to get coffee, love to get lunch, love to get together and, and chat through those things because it's important. Sometimes we act like theology is not important, but my, it's funny to me when people say that because what you're saying is the study of God is not important. That's what theology means, right? The study of God. The study of God is not important. It is important. And I just want to throw this out there. Some of you may get mad. But notice who does the action. And this is consistent in Scripture. To those who are elect. Elect means chosen or singled out. Who is the one doing the action? Yeah, it's God, right? And then it says after, he says something that maybe made you feel weird. Maybe you got really nervous if you were raised in a Baptist upbringing, because every time you hear the word sprinkle, you're like, oh, sprinkle, right? He said sprinkling with his blood, and you're like, oh, man, sprinkle, that's like an evil word. But it has nothing to do with baptism, obviously. What Peter is saying here, and this is important to grab onto, Peter is drawing your minds back to something in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there was a place called the Holy of Holies that was in the tabernacle in the temple, and in the Holy of Holies was something called the Ark of the Covenant. This is where God came down to be with man. Okay, and on the Ark of the Covenant, it's this box. On the very top is something called the mercy seat. So what would happen is the high priest, they would take a lamb that was spotless and blameless. Follow this. Spotless, blameless lamb. Kill the lamb and sacrifice the lamb. Take the blood of the lamb and sprinkle it on top of the mercy seat as an atonement for the sins of the people. So notice what Peter says. He says, so those who are elect, you chosen people, let me tell you who you are. You have been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. What he's saying is Jesus has fulfilled that. It's no longer necessary for the high priest to atone for the sins by killing the goat because Jesus is what? The Lamb of God, perfect, spotless, blameless, sinless, who has been sacrificed, and he climbed up on the mercy seat, which was the cross, not the top of a box, and he poured out his blood on the cross as an atonement for your sins and you have now been sprinkled with his blood as a once and for all payment for your sins. It's beautiful, right? This is how he launches into the church. Hey church, here's how I want you to understand who you are. You are chosen people sprinkled with the blood of Jesus, paid and forgiven your sins. That's who you are. Grace and peace be multiplied to you. 
It's important, too, to, to notice here that he, he's talking to the church, right? And the church is in Asia Minor. They're dispersed. They're kind of all over the place. And, and he calls them something that we're going to park on here for a second. It's really important. He calls them exiles. That's in our translation. But your translation may say aliens or strangers or sojourners. So he says, you are chosen aliens. What does that mean? Well, what is an alien? An alien is, is someone who is living in a particular place that is not their home for a period of time. It's not where their citizenship lies. It's not where their identity lies. They're there for a period of time. And we know this, right, very well in Miami. A lot of you here are aliens, or maybe your parents are aliens. All of us are friends with aliens. That this is not the place that holds your citizenship. You are here temporarily, or maybe for the entirety of your life, but this is not home, right? But it's interesting to think about, what do aliens do when they're in when they're in a place that they're at for a particular period of time. They work, they invest, they raise a family, they seek to understand the culture, they engage, they enjoy the place. They do everything that a citizen does, right? But the difference is their citizenship lies somewhere else. Their identity is found somewhere else. Their full rights and privileges are found somewhere else, which is what Peter is saying. He's saying to the church, church, you are a group, you are a collection of aliens, which means you're going to be very tempted to think that this is all there is. This is your home. This is what matters. This is your citizenship. This is your identity. You're going to seek, try to find your identity here. This is not where it's contained. You are chosen, elect people, pulled out, sprinkled with Jesus' blood, and your home is somewhere else. Your citizenship is somewhere else. Full rights and privileges are somewhere else. You are here temporarily to do all the same things that someone that seeks to find their identity and their citizenship here does. You're to work and you're to invest and raise a family and love and enjoy all all those things. But you're to understand that your identity, your citizenship is not here, somewhere else. I think this is important for us to, to, to think about because I don't know if you're like me. But I know that, and I love that. I love the idea that my citizenship is in heaven. But if I'm honest, so many times I'm seeking dual citizenship, right? Like, I I really want this also to be home, because sometimes I notice I'm trying to find my identity here. I'm trying to seek my citizenship here, keep it there. I want two passports, you know, so I can go back and forth whenever I want, right? And it's a dangerous game to play. It's a really dangerous game to play. And I think one of the reasons why this is a struggle for us in our culture is because we live in this world where we feel kind of trapped in this imminent frame, this box, right? Where, like, here is all that there is. Because we've flattened out the idea of the transcendent. We've flattened out the idea of mystery or enchantment. We've kind of squashed those things out. They're, they're not here. We want them. We crave them. We're haunted by them. But... Everything that matters is right before us. Because the cosmos is like the stars. We have a hard time like understanding and looking up and imagining that our citizenship and our identity is in another place that we can't see. It's difficult, right? We're haunted by this. And I think it's true. Look at our culture. If you survey our culture, and if you look at the idea, why are drugs, especially mind-altering drugs, so attractive to so many people? Because they want an experience that is otherworldly. 
right? You want, to, you want to experience something that you've never experienced in life and you don't think you can ever experience. So you want to, to go to a substance that will make you feel something transcendent, make you feel something mysterious and enchanted. To, to go find yourself in that place. Because we want it, we crave it, we just don't know how to find it. I mean, what, I think it's also too true of why we've taken sex and we've made sex just something we do instead of seeking to keep it holy and sacred because we use sex as a means to feel something euphoric, feel something otherworldly again, right? So we use it as this tool to find and to feel and to engage in something that we don't normally feel because we don't understand how that all works. And so we run after that. Look at our movies. And I, I, like, I love these type of movies, but look at the movies and novels that are most popular. They all, most of them have to deal with what? Sci-fi, fantasy, post-apocalyptic worlds, superheroes. Why? Because it's a yearning in us for something else, a different world, a different place that's mysterious and beautiful, and, and, and there's some kind of just otherworldly characteristic. I just looked at the top four movies in the box office right now, and, and here's what they are. X-Men, Alice Through the Looking Glass, Angry Birds, and Captain America, right? And I, those are, I haven't seen any of them yet, but I, I want to, especially in 3D. That's awesome. But we, we crave those things, so much so that if you look in Western culture, one of the fastest-growing religions in Western culture is Zen Buddhism. Why? Because people think that they can go there in meditation and these different practices to try to do feel and bring themselves somewhere else. We know something's out there beyond, but we don't really understand how to find it, so we'll try anything. Technology-free retreats, those are huge. Like, you leave your phone and because it's, like, impossible not to have your phone on you, right? All of these things. There's a, a man named Elon Musk. I don't know if you know who he is. He's a multi, multi, multi-billionaire. He is the owner of Tesla. And this week... He was at a conference, and here's what he said. He said that he believes there is a, listen, one in a billion chance that this is real life. One in a billion chance this is real life. Meaning, what he says in the interview is, he believes that we are a simulation of essentially the matrix. Someone else is playing a simulation that is our life, and he only thinks there is one in a one billion chance that that's not true. That's an extreme, obviously. I, don't, I mean, I've never met someone in real life that actually believes this is the matrix. He does. But why does he, why does he love that? Why does he think about that, that, that idea? He's going to have all these equations of why he thinks that's true. But he wants something transcendent, something mysterious, something enchanted, and so he's imagining well, it, we must be a simulation of a video game. That must be it. Because nothing else makes sense for him. See, that's who we are as a culture. And, and maybe, well, that would have been bad. And maybe, that's going to be careful, gentle fingers. Maybe you came to Christianity because of that. Maybe you were searching, right? Okay, just something's out there. I don't know what it is. And, and so you, you went to Christianity. Maybe that's why you're here tonight. Here's the good news. You found the right place. 
you found the place where God is with us. His name we've been talking about that night. Emmanuel, transcendent God here in this room. In you through the Spirit. Mysterious, beautiful, transcendent, enchanting. That's, that's who our God is and that's what we experience and come to know through faith. But here's the bad news. We're just as susceptible to struggle with this idea that the cosmos is, is, is way out there and we've flattened our world into caring only about here and now. We're just as susceptible to that. We've, we've kind of, in some sense, disembodied Christianity. And it's been taking place really since the Reformation um, and the Enlightenment. Because what happens with the Reformation and the Enlightenment, and the, the, the Reformation leaders are so important and crucial to Christianity because they've kept the purity of the gospel. But what's happened is we've become people that crave reason and rationale. We want answers. We want details. And so mystery freaks us out. The transcendent is something we can't understand. We've flattened it all out because we're pragmatic people. We equate success with something that you can accumulate or achieve tangibly. We equate joy with something that you can accumulate or achieve tangibly. We're focused, and I was thinking about this week, and I'm not like, I don't watch horse racing, except for when it's the Kentucky Derby or, you know, the other two big races, I don't even know the names of them. But if you notice in the horses, they wear those blinders on the side of their eyes, right? They wear it so that the horses, the only thing that they know is real and true in the moment is what's in front of them. They can't see anything over here. They see nothing over here. Only what's ahead of them. And I think so many times as Christians, we have blinders, but they're not on the side of our eyes. They're on the top of our eyes, right? Where we, we have a really hard time looking up and imagining, like Peter is getting at, that our identity and our citizenship is not here in the present. This, for us, is all that matters and all that's real. Instead, as believers, we're called, and Peter's calling us, to take the blinders off and to look up, to imagine, (laughs) to see who God is and the mystery of that. It's hard for us, right? When I was in seminary, um, you have to learn, for your master's, you have to learn two languages, Greek and Hebrew. Everyone loved Greek, everyone hated Hebrew. I was the only weirdo that liked Hebrew. Because Hebrew is poetic. And so what happens is you have a word in Hebrew that can mean 30 different things. So it's not detailed. People don't like it. If you ever asked yourself the question, why do we have such a hard time with, with those really inexplainable and difficult passages in the Old Testament in particular? Because we want answers, right? God comes to us in Isaiah and he says, my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. And we're like, okay, but try me, right? <laughs> right? It's kind of how we think. Because that's, that's how we are. We come to church and this is supposed to be a moment together as God's people where you experience the transcendence of who God is. That you experience mystery and beauty and something enchanting. And sadly, I think what's happened is church has become a lecture hall with sing-along songs, right? At least sometimes it feels like that because we have a hard time imagining, taking the blinders off and imagining what is taking place. What's taking place when we pray, when we sing, we listen to God's word? What's happening here in this moment, in this place? Because God says he is with us. It's difficult for us. 
So I want to look at what Peter said at the last few verses. I want to read through it slowly, and I want you just to imagine. I'm trying not to explain everything. I just want you to imagine what Peter is saying. Be okay with mystery. (laughs) Sit in that. Here's what he says. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. According to his great mercy. He's leading you to contemplate what is so great about the mercy of God. Here it is. He has caused us. So God has done something. He's done something that is incredibly merciful. Something obviously you didn't deserve. Here's what he says. He has caused us to be born again. Why would they use that language? Why would he use the word begat? Or born again in Greek. This is the nerd section here. Um, the word is in the aorist tense, which is a past tense. But it's important because it's a past tense that focuses on one singular event that has happened and been completed in the past. So what is Peter saying? According to God's great mercy, he has caused you, if you have faith, to be born again. That means there has been one moment where it has been finished, it has been done, it has been completed, and you will never lose it. He's referring back to what he just talked about before, that you have been sprinkled with the blood of Christ. Your sins have been paid for, it's done, it's over, it's finished. That's the mercy of our God. And then he says, but but the question is, and he keeps going, what are you born again to? He has caused you to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And hope in the New Testament always refers to to a promised future good, every single time. So read it again. Here's what it says. You have been born again to a a living, promised future good through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So he's, he's asking you, okay, now I want you to look up. I want you to take the blinders off and imagine what has been promised and guaranteed and given to you that is in the future, and it is incredibly good, and it reveals the mercy of who God is. Here's where you're going. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And here's the thing. At that verse, you cannot comprehend that. I can't comprehend that. Nobody can comprehend that. Because in our world, we have never and will never, this side of heaven, experience anything undefiled, imperishable, or unfading. Everything we touch, everything in our life, us, ourselves, we are perishable, we are fading, we are defiled. And Peter is saying, I want you to imagine, I want you to let this sink in, church, that you are aliens. You are chosen aliens, that you're here in this place for a reason, for a purpose, to work and invest and love and raise your family but it's, there, there's mission involved. You're here for a reason because you're sent. And I want you to understand when the temptation comes for you to try to seek your citizenship somewhere else, to try to find your identity in your work, your job, or relationship, or something else in life. I want you to remember who you are. You are chosen. You have been sprinkled with Jesus' blood once and for all. It's been done, and you're born again to that. It's done. It's over. And you are awaiting one day when you will return to where your true identity lies, where your true citizenship is, where your full rights and responsibilities, and that is in a place that is eternal, is imperishable, it is unfading, and it is kept in heaven for you, guarded 
for you. See, that is such a profound thing to contemplate. It is mysterious, and it's okay. It should be, a, we should be okay with that. And when you really understand that, it frees you to live the way that God has called you to live. It frees you to, to take risks for the gospel. It frees you to love people that are hard to love. It frees you to be okay with your inadequacy and with your failures and trust that God is merciful enough to transform you like he did Peter. It frees you up to be okay with the fact that you are a peculiar person. The church, we are peculiar people. See, the church during this time understood that. They lived, they didn't have blinders on. Some of the things that made them weird to society is they didn't go to, like, the Colosseum and all the, the bloodthirsty games. They didn't go there. So people thought Christians were antisocial. They did not join the military because they did not want to support the war of conquests of Caesar. They didn't... Um, they were not okay with abortion or infanticide because during this time, if you had a child and you didn't like how the child looked, or more particularly if the child was uh, a woman and you did not want a, a little girl, you could leave the child out in the cold and just let the child die. They were not, the church was not okay with that. They, were, they empowered women, which did not happen during this time. They were not okay with sex outside of marriage. They were not okay with uh, same-sex marriage. They were not okay, um, or they were radically for the poor, radically for the poor more than anybody else. They were racially diverse, which was known as scandalous during this time, and they believed in a polytheistic society where you could believe whatever you want, that Jesus was the only way to salvation. That's how they lived. They were peculiar people. Can you imagine if we lived like that? Can I imagine if I lived like that all the time? Notice what we would look like. If, If the church was anti-war, empowering women, radically for the poor, and promoting racial diversity. What does that sound like? Sounds liberal, right? But also, against abortion, same-sex marriage, sex outside of marriage, and insisting that Jesus is the only way to salvation. That's conservative. See, here's the beauty of the church. We are not, we don't fit into cultural boxes. We shouldn't. We should be seeking, because our identity is somewhere else, to look different. To, to be different, to ask God in his word, who, are, who have you called me to be, who have you called us to be as a church? Because we are aliens. <laughs> this isn't our home. We're resident aliens. And here's the, the thing that happens with aliens. When aliens come to a, a country or a place for a particular period of time, what do they always and inevitably do? They seek to bring their culture from their homeland to the place they're stationed. That's our call as a church, to understand our identity, to, to wrap our minds around the mystery of who God is and what he's done for us and what he's promised us, to seek our identity there, and then to realize we're sent here for a purpose, to invest and to love and to care and to bring that culture here. It's our calling. That's, that's a calling for me. It's a struggle. We're called to do it together. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word and this time together to contemplate who you are and and your calling to us. God, you are so, so incomprehensible in so many different beautiful ways. God, you tell us that you have promised us an inheritance that is imperishable and unfading. And God, we have a hard time understanding that. We have a hard time looking up and imagining 
who you are and what you've promised us. But God, we ask that you would give us eyes of faith. You would give us trust. You would help us to understand that that what happens here in this life does not define us. That our citizenship is somewhere else and our home is somewhere else. That's guarded for us. But God, we have been chosen and we have been selected and sent out to this place where you have called us to invest and to love and to work and to bring your gospel. So Lord, may we do that. May we seek to bring the culture of heaven down to earth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.